All right. Howdy. Howdy. All right. So it's so glad to be back here in College Station. For those of you that do not know me, my name is Benjamin Pinkerton, and I used to be a fellow here at Grace Bible Church. And before that, I was in the Corps of Cadets at A&M. Oh, well, okay. Represent. Okay. So graduated in 2014, and it's always such a blessing to come back here to Grace Bible Church in College Station. Uh, after I graduated from A&M, got married. Whoop! Yeah, there we go. Got married. And then uh, I did a year working with Campus Crusade for Christ here at Texas A&M with the core. And then I came on staff at the one and only Grace Bible Church, right? Grace, but well, there's like four now, but at Grace Bible Church. And so again, I've moved out to Dallas since then, and I've been going into seminary, getting my master's, wanting to pursue full-time ministry. And so I'm just so encouraged to be here at this place and college ministry at Grace Bible Church because this was the place for me where I really started to fall in love with Scripture. I started learning the, the importance of community, of being involved in fellowship, following after God's heart through the Word and through community. And I found that primarily actually in my church here at Grace Bible Church. And so again, it's always so exciting to be here. Now, me and KB, or I don't know if y'all call him KB, but Kevin Barra, me and him, we go pretty far back. And so he calls me up and he's like, all right, Ben, I'd love for you to come out and preach at co- in college at Southwood. And I said, all right, uh, sounds good. What, am, what do you want me to do? And he said, well, I would love for you to preach in Romans. And I was like, Romans, I love Romans. It's a great book. In fact, it is the theological treaty of Paul's theology. New Testament, you look in Romans and you can find the themes of theology all throughout. So it's an amazing book. And so I said, KB, I'm so excited to preach in Romans. What would you like me to preach on? He said, well, I'd like you to preach Romans 2 and 3. And I know a little bit about Romans and I know it kind of goes like sin, salvation, sanctification, security, and then service. So that's kind of the order of how the book goes. And I was like, wait a second, Romans 2 and 3, what are you trying to tell me? KB, and he said, I would love for you to preach on the fun topic of sin, of sin. I was like, wait, you want me to come out to College Station, one-off, preach to a bunch of college students on sin? He's like, that's exactly what I want you to do. Have a good day, right? And so that's what I am here doing today. And so although I'm making light of a very serious topic, as we know, the reality is that if we don't understand sin, we don't understand the lies that we believe about sin, then we will never fully comprehend the length to which our Savior died and rose again. So it's actually extremely significant that we study sin. So before we begin, I would love to pray again, and I would like for us to just stop and ask God to come into this place for us to recognize what he would have for us today. Let's pray. Well, Father, we just come to you again today grateful. We are grateful to be here, God. We're grateful for community. We're grateful for your word. And God, today as we study sin and how Paul lays out sin in Romans chapter 2 and 3, God, I pray that you would show us the length to which you love us, God. You will show us the length of our depravity, of sinfulness in our hearts, and that we believe lies. We try and adjust and make sin something that it's not so that we can feel better about ourselves. And God, I pray that today we would be convicted of what you would have for us to know. And that will lead us to repentance, but that will also lead us to marvel at your goodness and your love for us. So God, I just pray that you would not just give us information today, 
but that you would actually create heart transformation. And there's nothing I can say, there's no amount of time that we can spend here in a service to enact heart transformation, God. That is only going to happen through your spirit. And so we pray that today, God, that you would remove all the distractions that we've entered this room with, and that we would be able to focus on your word, that you would change us from the inside out, that we would leave here different than how we came in. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how many of you grew up on lies that no one really knows? So I saw a hand raised, actually. The reality is this. As I've been talking with my wife, I've realized more and more that parents love to tell untruths, I'll be gentle, untruths to children so that they will do what they want them to do. Take, for instance, a couple of these well-known lies that we tell the kids to make them obey. One of them is this. If you swallow your gum, it will stay in your stomach for seven years. That is just simply not true. Science disproves that. How about if you look, if you get too close to the TV screen, it will damage your eyes. Did you know that is not true either? Some of you are like, wait a second, my whole life is a lie, right? Another one, and this is good. My dad convinced me he was a wizard. This is what he did. We'd pull up to a stoplight, and he would say, all right, children, I'm a wizard. I will make the light turn green. Three, two, one, green. And I was like, do not disobey the wizard, all right? Like, I knew I needed to follow the wizard. Well, it's funny because talking to my wife, they also grew up on lies, and theirs are pretty dark, all right? My wife's mother convinced the children. They would go to Target, and they would be in line at, the, at Target, and she would say, all right, Get on the colored squares. And if you get off the colored squares, an alligator will eat you. Right? Kept all the children locked in place. Another pretty hardcore one was, all right, if you don't put your toys up, the borrowers, known as the little people, they will come out and steal all of your toys. Right? So, of course, all three of the children are extreme rule followers that are really nice and fearful. Right? I mean, that's kind of how it works. Right? So we believe lies. And it actually teaches us to do something specific. Maybe not live in light of who we really are. Now, going a little more serious note, we believe a lot of different lies. Maybe for you today, maybe you believe the lie that your worth or your value is found upon if after you graduate from A&M, you've got a job set up. Or maybe you believe the lie that you're only worthy if you graduate from Texas A&M, if you put a ring on before spring. That you're scared and that fear is coming because, wait a second, I'm getting close to graduating and I have no clue what's next. And you believe the lie and it starts to attack your identity. And you start to think, I'm not worthy because I don't have a job or I don't have a significant relationship. See, lies all the time convince us certain things. And the hard part about lies is that they're believable. They're tricky. Today, what I want to talk about is the lies we believe about sin. The lies that we believe about sin. And Paul really is going to break that down for three different audience members. So before we jump into Romans chapter 2 and 3 today, I want to give you a little context. See, Paul starts off Romans 1. And he starts off with this awesome proclamation. For I am unashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of salvation to all who believe. First to the Jews and then to the Greeks. You heard KB talk about that two weeks ago. We get excited. We say, I am unashamed of the gospel. And then what happens? We start to believe lies about who we are and who God is. And we start to crumble 
and fall. And our relationship with God slowly disintegrates before us because we're believing certain things. So what Paul says from Romans 1.18 all the way to the end of what we're talking about today is this truth, that all of humanity is guilty before a holy God. All of humanity deserves wrath and judgment. And what he does is he starts out large picture, talking to all the Gentiles, the pagans in the world. And he says, y'all suppressed the knowledge of God. And that led you to a place where God gave you over to your passions. And they fall into this spiral of sin and debauchery. And the vice list at the end of Romans 1 is extensive, but it's not exhaustive. It's not everything, but it's a hardcore list. Disobedient to parents, haters of God, These people have walked down this path of sin so long that they are committing atrocities over and over again. So he's talking to the Gentiles. But in Romans 2, he changes his audience. And let's follow along. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? See, Paul changes his audience from those people out there committing those atrocities. He turns to the self-righteous moralists, the people that would say, I don't do those things. And what Paul says right off the bat, is you need to understand how God judges sin. God judges sin rightly. Now that word rightly or righteously, it's based on reality. See, God sees so much more than the outward external expression of sin. He actually sees our hearts. He sees our minds. He sees our emotions. And he sees the holistic picture. And so when he judges, it is always rightly and righteously and based on reality. It's not just the outward expression. And so for me, that's the first lie that Paul is going to break down. He's going to tell you sin is external. That's the lie. Sin is only external. See, what Paul is about to do is what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gets up and proclaims this extremely long uh, set of sermons to all these people listening. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48, Jesus is going to say six times, you have heard that it was said this, but I tell you this. You have heard that it was said, do not commit murder or adultery or covet, but I tell you, and then he explains that commandment. He says, instead of the external action, God cares so much more about the internal, what's really going on holistically. Let's look at the first example, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So if you take someone's life, then that's the judgment you're going to receive. But then Jesus breaks this down. He says, but I say this to everyone who is angry with his brother, they will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, there's times when I'm reading the Bible that I come across something like that last line. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And I say, oh, Jesus, 
Jesus, how? How can you say that? Liable to the hell of fire because I call someone a fool? What's well, actually much worse than it even seems? Because that word fool in the Greek actually means idiot. It means empty-headed. When you call someone empty-headed, you're saying you are a nobody. You have no value to me. There is nothing you can say that is worth my time and attention. I am more important than you. Think about who Paul is addressing. You're looking down on the people over there, and yet Jesus says, if you even are thinking someone is less than you, less than important, less than who they are as an image bearer of God, you are liable to the hell of fire. This should grip us. This reality is that it is so much greater than simply the external action, the seen observable action by other people. And that's why we need to hear the truth on this sin or this lie about the sin. Sin is both external and internal. Sin is both external and internal. And I only have one example for this because I think it hits home. See, I think that a lot of us sit in groups and there are people that like to interrupt one another. Let's just go with that. They like to jump in the middle of a conversation. They like to interrupt people. Now, think about what is going on when someone interrupts someone else. Not to make you feel terrible right now, but think about this. When you interrupt someone else, what are you conveying to that person? And maybe what's going on in your heart? What you are saying is less valuable than what I have to say. How many of us maybe sit in prayer circles? And when someone's praying, talking to God, instead of listening and agreeing and hearing their heart and their passion as they talk to God, we are instead formulating, how am I going to pray out loud so people maybe think high of me? You think that maybe your prayer is more important than their prayer. You think that what they have to say is less valuable than what you have to say. See, if you think about it and you break it down, sin is so much more extensive than we even realize. If you interrupt people, that could be an indication that you think someone's less valuable than you. And what does that mean in Matthew 5? It means you're liable to judgment. So sin is much more than internal. It's internal and external. Now the second sin that we believe about lie, Paul will go on to say, is sin is relative. We think that sin is simply, it's relative. It's relative to the people around us. It's relative to the culture. It's relative to my personality. We believe that sin is relative. But follow along with me in Romans 2, verse 6. It says this, He, God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil the jew first and also the greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the jew first and also the greek and here's that last line for god shows no partiality god shows no biases so what we're saying right there whenever paul says god judges rightly he then goes on to say you know what also god judges based on a standard and get this the standard is works now, how often are we, do we hear about that in Grace Bible Church? That God's going to judge you based on your works. And a lot of times we skip right into Jesus and what he's done for us. But think about it. It says 
in verse 6, he will render to each one according to their works. What works, Paul? He says in 7, it's for the people who continuously seek eternal rewards, the things of God. Or in verse 10, he will judge you based on your works. The works is that you are always doing good. Wait, so you're telling me, Paul, that to hit the standard to do of the judgment of God, it means I have to always seek eternal words and I always have to do good at all times? That's exactly what Paul's saying. And it says it in Matthew 5. See, Jesus gets done. We're talking about, you've heard this, but I tell you this. It's more than external, it's internal. He gets to the end and Jesus drops the sledgehammer. And he says, so this is what you need to do. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Be perfect. You want to hit the standard of God? It's to be perfect, which is actually a a throwback to Leviticus 19.2. You must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. See, the standard by which God judges is based on your works, and that works is always being perfect, always being right, always being holy. Now, when I think about that, it reminded me. It reminded me of Judges 2016. So in Hebrew, what it's talking about, he says these 700 Benjaminite soldiers, these left-handed soldiers could sling a stone at a single hair and not miss. So these archers, let's go with that. They could sling that stone and they could hit a target and not miss. And that word miss is the word kata in Hebrew. And that word is actually the word used for sin all throughout the Old Testament. So even in Judges, we start to see to sin is to miss. To sin is to miss the mark. And the mark we've already discussed is perfection. Now I want you to think, have you ever thought for a second, I'm a good person. Like I'm I'm a good person. What are you conveying when you have that thought? Maybe explicitly or maybe subconsciously you think you're a good person. It's based on relativity. Because if you're basing it on perfection, then I probably, I would hope that none of us say we are perfectly always doing good at all times, always seeking the things of God. But we still think we're good people. How do we think that we're good? It's because it's based on relativity. Right? So we look at someone and we say, hey, wait a second. I'm not as bad as those people over there. I don't do those sins. And that's what Paul is calling out these people on. If you look down on other people and you're judging them, you are doing the same thing. You are making sin relative. You are making sin relative. Now, I want you to think about this. We all know, hopefully, we've heard the golden rule, which is actually from Jesus. Right? Matthew chapter 7. He says, do unto others as you would have done unto you. And we know in James, it says, everyone should be slow to anger. Right? We should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then we see in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1, where it says you need to respond to people with a soft answer, not a harsh answer, or that will stir up anger. Now imagine this. You, last night, pulled an all-nighter, which I did many a times, okay? Pulled an all-nighter because I got an exam. And the exam comes, and you just blow it. You just blow it. I was as I was thinking of this sermon, biology 111 for me, like three exams in a row. It was like all night, I study, and I just vomit. Like I thought I might have known something, I knew nothing, right? So imagine that. I walk out of that exam, I come home, 
and I greet my roommate. And I'm not feeling so good because I'm tired and I just failed. And this is just horrible. And I meet my roommate, and the roommate says this. Ben, why didn't you uh, put up the dishes? Put up the dishes? Are you kidding me? I want you to think for a second. Now, I know the golden rule. I'm supposed to treat others as they would treat me, and I'm supposed to be slow to anger, and I'm supposed to answer gently and softly. But in that moment, you better believe that I am probably not answering with this gentle, I am so sorry, my brother. I am so sorry that I committed this sin. Instead, I might yell at him. And a lot of us would probably say, hey, you're pretty justified in that. Now, think about that. We have these, uh, these commandments to obey and be faithful to God. But in that moment, what do I do? Well, no, sin is based on my circumstances. And my circumstances say I deserve to be a jerk right now. Because you asked for it. It's your fault, right? In that moment, that's probably what I do. Or perhaps maybe some of us in this room, we have some friends, or maybe we are that person. Where sarcasm, they're kind of demeaning people. You know, sarcasm sometimes has that I want to lower people before me. I kind of tell half-truths. I'm insulting the people around me. But then you've got that friend that says, yeah, but that's my love language. That's my personality, man. Like, if I'm not sarcastic and a jerk to you, then I don't like you. We've all heard it. I know you have. You either have said it or have heard it. Oh, yeah. Like, that's just his love language. I want you to stop and think about that just for a second. When we talk about sin is relative. Right? To be harsh to someone else but that's my personality, so it's all good. Where do, where do we get that? It's because we're not basing it on a standard of perfection. We're basing it on relativity. I keep saying this weird word for relative, but the point is this, that we want to make our sins less than the people around us. We want to think of ourselves as good, but the truth we need to hear is this. Sin is a failure to meet God's standard of absolute perfection. It is not relative to the people around you. It is not relative to your personality. It is not relative to your culture and how they treat one another. It is based on the standard of absolute perfection. And lastly, Paul is going to get into the last lie that we believe, and it is this. We believe that sin is rule-breaking. Now, a lot of you in here are like, wait a second. I thought sin was rule-breaking. Sin is simply rule-breaking. See, what Paul's going to do next in his argument, he's going to stop talking to the self-righteous moralists. He's now going to talk to the Jews. So he started big, he got smaller, and now he's focused on the Jews. And he actually has the harshest critique of the Jews. He says, Jews, follow with me in verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What Paul just said right here is he said, you have made your ceremony more important than your character. You have made religiosity and following rules more important than intimacy and caring about people. He he gives this harsh indictment. You care more about following rules than loving God. And that is a sin in itself. That is what the Pharisees missed the mark on. They wanted to follow all the rules, and when someone started to break the rules, how did they respond to those people? It wasn't out of love. They crucified Jesus for a reason. 
The reality is that he moves into Romans 3 and he faces these objections. And he's just like, wait a second, you're telling me that I am just as guilty as the Gentiles? No way. I have the law. I've got circumcision. I follow all these commandments. There's no way that I'm as bad as those people over there. And Paul says, no, you're worse. You're worse because you had the law. You had circumcision. You were chosen to be the covenant people. And yet you made the rules more important than your creator. And at the end, right after he talks about those objections, he says this in Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Jews and Greeks all are under sin. We think of sin as simply rule breaking. And I want to tell you a little illustration. I got married about five years ago. To my lovely, beautiful, and kind wife. We got married. I, I proposed to her two hours after I, I finished my final exam. I did the century tree. I did the Corps of Cadets. I had the saber arch. It was awesome. right? I want you to imagine this, though. Now, maybe a couple days ago, I get done coaching. I get done taking classes. My phone's dead, but my bros want to go hang out. So, that's okay. I don't need to tell Kara. Yeah, I just go. I'll go on and hang out with those guys while well, I get back to the house at 2 a.m. And I greet my lovely and kind wife, but something's off. See my, see, see, my wife, she looks at me, and she's, her eyes are red, and she's been crying. And she says, where have you been? Why didn't you call me? I was so worried. I made dinner. It's been a long week. I wanted to spend time with you. I care about you. What happened? And this is how I reply. Wait, 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 wait. We did not make any rule that I have to call you. Or I didn't make any rule that I have to rush home and spend time with you. And we didn't make any rules that I have to eat dinner with you. What's your problem? Now, I hope, I really hope in this moment that you're siding with my wife. All right, that, if you're not, you're wrong, okay? Always wrong, by the way, all right? The reality is in that moment, I would have been very, very off. Why? Because five years ago, when we got off that horse-drawn carriage, and we went into the hotel, you know what we didn't do? We didn't pull out a piece of parchment and go through the do's and don'ts of our marriage. We didn't go through, all right, if you do this and this and this and don't do this, this and this, then you're going to make me happy. and We're going to fulfill the contract of our marriage. That is definitely not what we did. That would have been foolish. Let me tell you, if I want to make my wife feel lovely and important and cared for, if she wants to truly know I care about her, then I would never make my, my relationship with her based on a bunch of rules. That would break her heart. And yet, and yet, how often the God of the universe who knows everything about us, do we make our relationship with God based on a bunch of rules? There's a lot of dangers in thinking of your relationship with God primarily as following the do's and don'ts. And here are some of them. For one, whenever you think of sin as rule-breaking, and that's it, then you're going to look for loopholes. You're going to read Scripture, and you're going to try and create alternative interpretations. Well, I live this way, or I want to do this thing, but I don't want to break the rule, and so I'm going to bend the rule, or I'm going to change the rule because the, the Bible doesn't actually say it that way. You're going to look for the bare minimums. You're going to be like the child that comes to the edge of the cliff, Comes to the edge of the cliff, but doesn't want to fall off. 
right? That's what we're going to do with rules. It's going to foster competition. It's going to make you become a referee in your relationship with God. You will start to not see people as fellow image bearers of God. You will see them as rule breakers and rule followers. And it's your job to patrol and make sure they know every time they break a rule. Because you yourself, you follow the rules. There is extreme danger in thinking of our relationship with God or sin as simply rule breaking. And one of the saddest things, Galatians 5 talks about it. It's all throughout the New Testament. For freedom, Christ has come to set you free. For freedom. How often does our relationship with God feel like we're really free? How often do we really find the freedom that the scripture talks about? And I would, I would push that maybe it's because you think of your relationship with God as he's just watching and waiting for you to screw up. I don't want to mess up. I'm going to let him down. He's going to be disappointed with me. I'm just not good enough. That's your relationship with God. Of course it hurts. And of course there's no freedom. And lastly, just as my relationship with Kara, my relationship with God, instead of thinking, what can I get away with? I will think, what pleases God's heart? What really will make him satisfied and joyful? I want to be obedient because I love him. Like, there's a big difference of following rules and trying to please the one you love. So this is the truth that we all need to hear. We've been hearing... Sin after sin after sin, lies that we believe after lies that we believe. Romans 1 all the way through to 320 is about, guess what? You're all sinners. You all deserve judgment. No one escapes because your works aren't perfect. You're not good enough. You have made sin so many other things, but reality states that you are guilty. You are guilty before a holy God. And this is the truth that we need to hear. Yes, we are all sinners. We are all sinners, constantly sinning. We screw up all the time. We are missing the mark of God's perfect standard all the time. And that is precisely why every single one of us, we need a Savior. We need a Savior. Follow along with me in Romans 3, 20 through 24. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. And this is where a lot of us have actually memorized a verse. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But how many of us know Romans 3.24? and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. For all have sinned, all have fallen short. Fallen short. Again, think about that. The archer shooting at the target, he misses the mark, he's sinned. Well, this, the archer shoots his target, he doesn't even make the arrow to the target. You not only miss the mark, you completely fall short of the mark. You are just not there. You cannot be perfect at all times in every single way internally and externally. You fall short continuously. And yet, that's where the good news comes in. Romans 3, 24. You are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's a lot of Christian-y words. And we sometimes say that sin and justification and grace and redemption. But let me just tell you, 
that when we are justified, Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, to be justified is to be in the, legal, in the right legal standing based on perfect behavior. And we just established that none of us are perfect. So my legal standing before a holy God will always be in the place of separation, of disconnect. I have no relationship with God because I am not good enough to measure up. And yet when it says we are justified, we actually stand right over here near to God. Our legal standing is justified based on perfect behavior. And that perfect behavior was not our own. See, we have been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ by grace. Grace Bible Church. I hope you know what grace means. Grace means that you received something that you did not earn, that you did not deserve. It is undeserved merit or favor. And I would even say this, that it's exactly the opposite of what we deserved. See, Jesus, he lived perfectly and he hit the standard. He never fell short. He lived perfectly. So guess what he deserved? He deserved life, but he got death. And we fell short and we missed the mark all the time. And yet we deserved death. We received life. That is grace. That is grace to stand in the presence of God and say, I am justified before you because of perfect behavior that was not my own. It was Jesus's. And I gladly received that. Gladly received that. And that last word, redemption. Now, redemption is the idea of buying something back. To redeem something is to buy it back. and Specifically, buy it back from slavery. So when we were redeemed by Jesus, we were bought back from our identity as sinners and put into a relationship with God. We need to comprehend. We need to understand that we were not in the doghouse because of bad behavior. We were in the morgue. We were completely disconnected from God in every single way. We were the walking dead. Disconnected. Deserving of hell. We deserve to be separated eternally from God. And yet, Jesus looked at you and said, I want to buy you back because I love you and I care about you. And he bought you back with the price of his life. So there is application for today. We are all sinners and we all need a savior. And I've been talking to two groups today, two different groups in the audience. And for the first group, I want to tell you this. A couple years ago, I was working at the church, interning, taking classes, working out, doing all these things. I would come home and I was exhausted all the time. I was so tired. But I just chalked it up to, I'm busy. It's just a busy life. That's kind of the grind of daily life. But my wife, she said, you should probably go to the doctor. You should go to the doctor. And this is what I said to her. No, I'm good. I don't need a doctor. I'm good enough. Right? It's just the grind of daily living. No reason to go to the doctor. I went to the doctor, found out I had mononucleosis, which is also known as mono, which is also known as the virus that has Sam Darnold's sideline for the New York Jets. I don't know if that matters to you. All right? (laughs) Mono is this virus that attacks you and makes you exhausted all the time. And it will go on and on and on unless you get fixed. And guess what? I was not willing to go to the doctor. But as soon as I did, I found out I had symptom known as mono. And the doctor fixed me. And I was able to get back to who I was really supposed to be. I want you to think about what Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. 
He said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And I hope if you've heard anything today, you and me, we are all sinners. And when Jesus says this, I have not come for the healthy, but the sick. He's stating something very emphatically. If you don't think you're sick, you'll never go to the doctor. If you don't think you're a sinner, you will never need a savior. So I encourage you, Jesus is calling you. If you have never put your faith in Jesus, I would encourage you to think about, have I ever actually accepted Jesus as my savior who substituted his life for mine that I might live and have a relationship with God for eternity? I encourage you, if you accept that call, it will be the most significant accepting call that you've ever received. For the second group of you that I've been talking to, you put your faith in Jesus, and you're trying to figure out, how do I be faithful to God? Now, in seminary the last couple of years, what we really like to do is we like to take uh, subconscious ignorance and really just make it conscious. What I mean by that is you don't really realize how little you know until they tell you you know nothing. That's kind of what happens over and over. The more I study God, the more I realize God is way bigger than I thought. I know so very little of God. I know so very little of my sinfulness. And every single class, I learn a little bit more about how much I do not know. But I would, I would push you to think about Christian maturity in this way. As we develop our relationship with God, I think it's actually quite simple. I want you to think of a graph, and I actually have it on the screen. I want you to think of the y-axis as God's holiness. Our awareness of God's holiness. He is perfect. He is holy. He is otherly. I can never be like that. And yet, the x-axis, I want you to think about your sinfulness, your depravity. You grow more and more aware of how much you sin. You realize how much more and more, how much you need a Savior. And those things grow bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger throughout your Christian life. And the hope is that all throughout that Christian process, the cross that connects that gap grows bigger and bigger and bigger too. We have all heard the gospel before. We've all maybe seen this process. But I would encourage you, in your small group today, I want you to talk about that. What's the lies that I believe about sin? Maybe do I, do I allow God's holiness to really start to come? And do I grow in my awareness of that? And also, do I grow more and more aware that I'm a sinner? No matter how long I've been a Christian, no matter my Christian heritage, my history, the family I'm in, the church I'm at, all of those things don't matter. I am a sinner, and I am broken, and I need help. I want you to discuss that in your group. So right now, if these, the uh, table group leaders could go, I'm about to pray. And then we'll finish in a song of worship. Well, Father, we just come to you asking, begging for you to reveal to us more and more the lies that we believe. We need to see, God, because we are blinded by the enemy. There's nothing more the enemy wants us to do to to think of our relationship with you as a bunch of rules. God, we confess to you that sometimes we think sin is only the external actions, the things that are seen rather than unseen. We confess to you that sometimes we do think sin is just relative. 
to the people around us that I'm really a good person. I don't really need a savior. I don't really need help. I don't really need a doctor. But God, I just pray that you would show us more and more through community, through your word, through your spirit, God, that we would comprehend the love to which you have extended. God, that you gave yourself completely on the cross for us. God, you saw all the sin. You saw all the depravity. You saw that we were completely dead in our trespasses. And you said, I want them. I care about them. I love them. God, I just pray that as we grow in our relationship with you, we would more and more grow aware that you are a holy and perfect God, deserving of all praise. You are deserving of our entire life in every way. And God, I pray that we would also grow more and more aware of just how far we have fallen from the perfection that you have called us to. And I thank you, I thank you, Jesus, that your death on the cross connected that chasm. God, I pray we would not become prideful. I pray that we would not look down on other people for their struggles. God, we would look inward. We would want to walk faithfully with you and to love people as you have loved us. God, change us. Allow us to leave here different than when we came in. We pray this all in the wonderful name of Jesus.